everyone, welcome to Jollo Month Club. I'm your host, Diana Koch. On this episode, we travel to Germany as we analyze a Red Queen kill seven times from 1972. This gothic horror Jollo hybrid features themes of folklore and fable storytelling, in addition to a wide range of female performers. My guest for this episode is a frequent contributor to Jollo of the Month Club. He is a musician, filmmaker, and fellow podcaster, welcome back to the podcast, Wade Brown. Hello! <laughs> I'm back. It's been a few months. It's been since August. Yeah. You kind of locked me in like a cell. And like, well, like old like, in this movie there's like a dungeon. You locked me in a dungeon and like, you can come out and like, review, sir? Yeah, I had you locked into my, my German castle. Hell yeah. Avita <laughs> saying... That's goodbye, I believe, so I shouldn't say that yet. I should say that at the end of the episode. <laughs> but yeah, I'm back. I'm here for uh, Red Queen Kills Seven Times. What a name. Yes. I wonder what happens in this. I don't know. Does she kill seven times? I think it's more, actually. Maybe. We'll get into it. We'll, we'll be, yeah, we'll get into that. We'll, sorry. Step so, on your hosting test. <laughs> so since it's been a while since you've been on the podcast, is there anything interesting that you've been watching recently? Man... Cramming the 2020 movies 100%. I mean, I watched Wonder Woman. We watched Wonder Woman. You got a special screening. You're like, hey, got an extra ticket. And I was like, okay. And Yeah, you, Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah, that's fine. Caught it with The Expanse. Season 5 is out now. Stuff's going crazy. Amazon Prime. Prime. It's on Prime, yes. It's getting crazy, folks. And, uh, yeah, now I'm, like, trying to think. I'm done with my tw- top 10 list of movies and music. So it's like... Now I'm thinking, what do I watch now? That's the biggest question I have right now. Yeah, so we're recording this a few days before the end of the year. Yes. So, I mean, you could just take it easy for a few days. That's true. But I'm like, what show should I put on? <laughs> I guess The Office is coming off the air on Netflix. But, it, I mean, I, yeah. I've binged it like 25 times. So it's off like, Netflix on the Peacock. Yes. So I watched The Last Drive-In, Joe Bob Saves Christmas, oh, the holiday that. special. I did that too. It was Dial Code Santa Claus from 1989 and Christmas Evil from 1980. Yes. It was a fun night. I fell asleep a little bit on Christmas Eve. <laughs> That's much less a slasher than I yeah. thought it was going to be. Oh, um, and... uh, 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 Dial, was it Dial what for Santa Claus? Code Santa Claus. Dial Code Santa Claus. Great set design. French, yeah. Home Alone. Crazy Santa. It's great. It's had a great look to it. I thought it was really good. For years, I thought that Santa was Sam Neill with a fake beard. Oh. Because there's this very specific still of him that I would see everywhere, and it looked like Sam Neill, but yeah. it's not. Also, uh, belated happy holidays, everyone. Yeah, happy holidays, everyone. Everyone got some cool Jalo films. From, yeah, all for, those for, for, Black for, Friday sales. Yeah, from and Arrow or from Severin or Vinegar Syndrome. Syndrome. Mm-hmm. All, anywhere. Well, speaking of the holidays, I did watch a few holiday movies over the past few weeks. I watched Elf, Shazam, and Die Hard. Oh, gosh. We're going to have that Die Hard conversation, aren't we? It's a Christmas movie. It is. I know. <laughs> I'm not going to be a weird person. I've been on a kick lately where a lot of the action movies that I watch are all German terrorists, <laughs> like German radicals. Yes. I guess because it's late 80s and that was just who the villains were. I mean, they were also the villains in like the 50s too and the 40s. So I guess it's just like, <laughs> I guess evil European, specifically East European. <laughs> right. It's never like right. West Germany. 
this film, The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, is set in Germany. Oh, man. And there is a villain. Technically, there's a hero, and, and all, they're all German. Yeah. <laughs> the film, it tackles family curses and sibling rivalries head-on, but in a stylish way. Did you like it? Did you not care for it? Um, I think overall I liked it. I, I think there's some parts I'm like, Ugh. Okay. Uh, you know. We'll, we'll get into Editing the details choices. then. Editing choices. Yeah, I like I like seeing where your head's at because we haven't talked about it yet. So it's yeah. it's we good have literally to know. for the audience we have literally not talked about this movie at all. No, not the not one bit. The only thing we talked about is we watched two different versions. <laughs> <laughs> at this episode, it will contain spoilers. You can watch the Red Queen kill seven times on Prime Video and also on Shutter. Boom boom. You watched on Shutter, Yes. And it was in Italian. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I had the Arrow Blu-ray, so I was able to have English dubbing. So. Which may have made my experience a bit more enjoyable. No, no, I, I kind of liked, uh, the, the Italian was fine. I thought, <laughs> the, I mean, it's the first scene, so it's not a spoiler, but the little girls, their mics were too, the, the boom was way too close to that. Oh, like, I didn't even be, get that. Because, it, like, the Italian voice acting, it was peaking the mic and it was kind of just hurting my ears. That's the only difference, I thought. Okay. Yeah. That, that's not really a spoiler, no, but yes, this, this episode will contain spoilers. And I did have one trigger warning, which was there's one implication of rape. Yes. The scene doesn't show anything. It shows the beginning and the after. But if that triggers you, just be aware of that before you watch this on Prime Video, Shutter, or purchase the Blu-ray or yeah, DVD. And, and you, well, they don't show it, but, I mean, you see the male character and you can only think the worst. Oh, total sleazeball. Oh, awful. He looked like a Calkin brother. Yeah. Like, if this was remade present day, yes. one of the Calkins would be playing yeah. that guy. Probably Rory. Kieran, I, Kieran, he, I think Kieran. Kieran does a lot of like the race stuff. I mean, Colin Culkin lately is very like he does whatever, man. Just one of them. I don't care I which think one. All of them. They can be like <laughs> they can be like you know like an old rascals. They have like the the two kids in like a trench coat. They're on each other's shoulders. <laughs> we'll just do that. The Red Queen Kill Seven Times was the final film of director Emilio Miraglia, and it was his second Jalo in a row. After years of being an assistant and second unit director on projects with Lucia Fulci, Emilio directed a few obscure crime thrillers, but he is best known for a pair of excellent gothic horror films, one being this one, and the other being The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave. Another great name. Another Evelyn. Another Evelyn. So he made that film first, and then the German uh, production team behind The Red Queen Kills Seven Times went to him and before the film was made and said, like, hey, do you have something else? Like, we really, like, are really interested. So I'm not really sure if he had, like, an Evelyn multiverse or if it just happened to be, <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe someone he cared about and was named Evelyn, but I th thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad that you picked up on that as well. Just as he did in his previous film, the director combines gothic and giallo subgenres in this movie, and this time the gothic elements are toned down with the overall feel of the film leaning more into straight giallo. This is more of a modern giallo with gothic elements. And as you mentioned, the film opens with two young sisters 
One is blonde. Her name's Kitty. The other one is brunette. That's Evelyn. The family name is Wodenbrook. Or is it a Wodenbrook or something like that? It's German, so I assume the W is more. Yeah. Bleh. I was watching Italian, so it's very, there's talking really fast. Yeah. The Wodenbrook. The Francesca Blumenbrook. Like, yeah. Oh, whoa. It's spelled Wodenbrook. So if you're um, German, listen to this, I'm sorry. <laughs> They're playing not so nicely at the family castle. <sighs> Evelyn, man. That's my note I wrote. Evelyn, oof, straight beheading dolls. <laughs> As they're playing, they happen upon a large old painting of a blonde woman stabbing a brunette woman. Their grandfather, who happens to be sitting right there, explains that the painting represents an incident from the family's past. After the blonde sister, the black queen stabs and kills the brunette sister, the Red Queen. The dead sister rises from the grave and in an act of revenge kills seven family members. The family is now cursed for this to happen every 100 years. The next cycle is due in 1972 when the young sisters will be in their late 20s. After their grandfather has the painting removed from the castle, Evelyn declares herself to be the Red Queen. And during the opening credits of the film there is a montage showing a rather intense fight between the two sisters yes sibling competition king abel duality good versus evil you know that old folklore fairy tale exactly Yeah. yeah i'll talk more about that later on when i dive into the theme black versus white or black versus red good versus evil that sort of motif is a popular one when it comes like fable and folklore yeah Then we see that 14 years later, Kitty has become a fashion photographer for a popular German fashion house, while Evelyn is said to be studying in the United States. Wasn't the company called Springe or something like that? Springy. Springy. Something like that, yeah. Spring with an E on the end. And this film, although it is a bit gothic, it is a modern giallo and it includes such giallo influences as a cloaked killer with black gloves. There's a liberal dose of nudity and cleavage. Great outfits. We'll talk about the outfits shortly. (laughs) There's a reading of a will. We follow the lives of the rich and well-off. I mean, they live in a freaking castle. Ah, J&B whiskey. I believe that was in there. Yep. There's a red telephone. There's <laughs> saw that. There's the broken doll imagery. Yes. Uh, and there's also a theme of fashion, which is similar to Blood and Black Lace. And don't forget murder. Of course, thrills, murder, <laughs> horror. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I want. So we have alternate titles of the corpse which didn't want to die. It does have a good ring to it. The lady in red kills seven times. A bit long. Not as catchy as, as what we end up with. Blood Feast. Been done before. Feast of Flesh. Sounds like a zombie movie. There's no cannibalism, so no. And Horror House. It's a castle, not really a house, but okay. I prefer this title. Yeah. yeah. The Red Queen Kills Seven Times. Yes. Horror House. Horror House was the German title. Ah, uh, Horror House. Well, I mentioned the liberal dose of nudity and cleavage, so we might as well talk about the cast. Barbara Boucher is our leading lady in this film. Yes. Took me a minute to tell the difference between her and her older sister. Francesca, yes, I had the same issue. Yeah. Franziska. Franziska. (laughs) But Barbara Boucher, she plays Kitty, 
And she's also in the film, the actress is also in the film, Don't Torture a Duckling. Okay. So you'll know her from that, that Jalo film. And then we have Marina Malfetti as Francesca, who was in All the Colors of the Dark, Seven Bloodstained Orchids, and also the previous film from this director, The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave. The two blonde sisters are, are Kitty and Francesca. Then we have Martin Hoffman, who is Barbara's boyfriend. He's worried about having the murders pinned on him. Yeah. He also has a wife who is locked in a psych ward. That actor is a popular Italian television actor. So he's been in a lot of television. His, his, his real name is Martin? No, his name is Ugo Paglia. Okay, I was about to say that. That's pretty convenient. No, no, no. Ugo is his name. Oh. U-G-O. Okay. Ugo? Ugo girl. <laughs> and then we have Rosemary, who... I loved her outfits. She was a total fashion queen. Yes. That's, that was just my note. I just didn't know her job. I was like, fashion queen. But she is Martin's ex-secretary. So she also works at the fashion house with Kitty and Martin. And she was in the Jallo films Evil Eye and Curse of the Red Butterfly. There's also one cast member we forgot to mention. A famous musician's in this. You didn't see Freddie Mercury as the detective? <laughs> <laughs> he looked... Just like Freddie Mercury. That mustache. It, that's what I'm saying. It, you know, of course, Freddie Mercury had more of an overbite. Yeah. But that guy, I was like, is that Freddie Mercury? So I didn't know his actual name. I just called him Mercury or Freddie. Yeah, I did not note him, but I did note Sybil Danning as Lulu Palm. She was in Eye in the Labyrinth and a bunch of sleazy exploitation films. 70s. And then the Calkin brother, his character's... <sighs> Peter. His character's name's Peter. He is a drug dealer and he was in the Jallo films Death Walks at Midnight and Death Walks on High Heels, which was the runner up when we were picking which film the Death review is this walking month. in his film. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. See a lot of like doubles. Death Walks, yeah. Evelyn's all over the place. Sisters. Blondes. Oh, there's three sisters. Well, no, there's two sisters. No, there's three. Sorry. There's three. Two blondes and a brunette. I forgot Evelyn. <laughs> I think everyone did. That's our main cast. We have a also, lot of side characters. Herbert. We have Herbert, who is Francesca's husband. Let me clear if it was his husband, her husband or lover. I, didn't, I was not sure about this. That her live-in boo. Yeah. He lives at the castle with her. Let me look at him. And Kitty has a separate apartment. She does not live in the castle. Yeah. But Francesca lives in the castle and stays with the grandfather, who his name's Tobias. But I just call him grandfather because he's very, you know. He, he ain't in the movie long. He's old. <laughs> the German version of the film is 15 minutes shorter than the Italian release. And although the film was co-produced by a German production company, it was never released theatrically. And it only premiered straight to video in the late 80s in Germany. Oh, that's interesting. Dalton. Under okay. Horror House. Oh, okay. Did it do well under Horror House? I didn't like it. Okay. I traveled back to the 80s. That was, you know, okay. my opinion back then. Okay. <laughs> the Fashion House and the police station set were built inside the National Library in Rome. So those were not actual locations. That was inside the new library at the time. And the apartment where Martin... Kitty's boyfriend lives is the same one where Edwig Fennick lives in the popular Jollo, The Strange Vice of Miss Ward. Oh, wow. So whenever you do that, Jollo, you're like, I know that. But they are DiCaprio. 
when he's like pointing at me <laughs> with him pointing at the TV. Yeah, the apartment that has the crazy striped wallpaper. Yeah, that, that stood out to me. And did you notice the curtains matched? Yeah. That was so neat. It's like, wow. Cool apartment. I, I and that's apartment, where the J&B was. Yeah, that, yeah. I hope it was like they didn't have to set dress anything. I hope that was how the apartment looked, period. Yeah, I hope so too. I thought stylistically the film looked wonderful. Yes. The director of photographer was Alberto Spagnoli. He passed away around the age of 49, and he didn't really have many other films. I, I made sure to look him up because I really like the imagery in this film. Yeah. What's great is like, they had this Victorian castle, but then they have modern German look. Like, they have like this clash of styles coming on. It works tremendously. Yeah, a lot of the shots with the castle, they used a wide-angle lens, which I really liked because it made the castle look so big, and then the people look so small, yeah. which made it seem even, like, more elaborate. Especially and... the first scene with the children. They made, they made it even yeah. bigger. Every time that there's a new kill, the Red Queen or the victim is shown from a different angle, which I thought was very creative. Same laugh. Same laugh. And it kind of, you know, it's a little bit repetitive because it would show the Red Queen, like, running away and, and laughing. But the actual kills were all from different angles, which I thought, again, well, was, like, we'll very, get into the very kills. creative. Boy, howdy. We'll get into the kills. <laughs> Another shot that I really liked was the kaleidoscope photography during the fashion shoots. I love that, and that was very all the colors of the dark. They do that yeah. a ton in that film, which I am a big fan of the cinematography in that. Yeah, the cinematography is great. Uh, one scene I'll point out, uh, we'll get into the grandpa, what happens to the grandpa in his bedroom. That whole sequence is like the first time you see the Red Queen, and you see it's it's how the, it's also the editing. The editing in that scene is great, but I have issues with the editing. We'll get into that. Yeah, there's like, some other editing that's iffy. But yeah, but that, but that, that one was scene... Good. It seems like when they get to the kills and they get to like the big action pieces, I I shouldn't say action pieces because it's not Skyfall, <laughs> it's not James Bond, but like like it's really well edited and has tension. That first scene with the grandpa seeing the Red Queen is tense. Uh, that's why I would say the cinematography is great. Also, when she's going to like the dungeon area of the castle or the basement area. It's like the camp. It's near the end. The camera. POV, just, like, yeah, like the camera's claustrophobic. Just the camera's just following mm-hmm. her. Throughout the whole thing. It's one long shot. I'm like, this is great. Yeah, that, like, chase scene. Yeah, yeah, that was very, very effective. And I felt like that was very, like, claustrophobic. Very tense. Something that I really enjoyed in the film, which you probably didn't particularly care about, was the fashion. It looked good. Well, the reason it looked so great is because they hired Italian fashion designer Mila Schoen to make the clothes that the female cast members wear in the film. The designer is famous for working with Jackie Kennedy, Jackie O. I, I got that with um, a lot of the, the kidding. The, the suits. The suits. Mm-hmm. It got me very Jackie Kennedy. Fun little tidbit is that Barbara, Barbara Boucher, who plays Kitty, she was the main cast member who wore like couture and a lot of the high-end stuff, but the rest of the cast was allowed to pick their own wardrobe. So essentially, this fashion designer brought in like racks of clothes, and then in the beginning of the scenes or the beginning of the day, whoever was in the scene would go up, you know, go up to the racks and like pick what they liked and picked what they felt comfortable in, which made it seem like a lot more realistic and like it made everyone feel a lot more comfortable inside. So that makes you think that the character of Kitty was meticulous. The, 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 the writer or the director was very meticulous. Maybe in the script it says she has to pre-dress yeah. like this or the director's like, you know, I feel like she's got to look like this. It's, it looks like a very meticulous choice. Yeah, and she gets a lot of the meaty scenes. You know, she is our lead and, you know, she has the apartment that you see. You, you, you get to see her life a lot more than 
you know, her sister's life or the life at the castle because she is the lead and you're meant to sympathize with her. So I think that, yes, it was very meticulous. They picked out her clothes and they hired this specific fashion designer to dress her. But I love that they just like let everyone else pick their clothes. This very specific outfit of Rosemary at the police station where she has the beret and like the black striped like jumpsuit with a belt. Yeah, I remember that. I was obsessed with that outfit, like, and I want that outfit. You're like, eBay? Yeah, I'm like, I'm going to recreate so, that as soon as I'm not in quarantine and actually have to, like, wear real clothes. So, audience, um, <laughs> if you know where she can get one of these, if you've seen the film, please just comment on one of the many Instagram posts yeah. for this movie. If anyone has a connection with Mila Schoen Fashion House, please let me know. I will gladly take some clothes off her hands. Yes. <laughs> This is where your expertise comes in. Okay. The music. Oh, the music's great. And it was Bruno Nicolai. Yeah, what I liked about it is it's just like how in the shots it's very Victorian mixed with modern style. I mean, I mean the little girl, I believe it's Kitty, she's, hum- she's, she's humming it. She's not whistling it. She's humming the melody, yep. the main tune, the main theme, and it's very Victorian harpsichord kind of sound. But then there's like... Everything else, it's very kind of modern. There's some dreamy piano in there, but there's a lot of it's just very kind of modern 70s kind of sound. Yeah. Did you get like a Morcone vibe from it? Yes. Well, did you know that Bruno Nicolai actually taught Morcone what oh. he knows? Oh, he's the master of the masters. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I think the score, and it's one of those things like, yeah, they played the theme over and over, but it's things like it's stuck in your head. Yeah. But they use it, it's not overbearing. And there's a lot. It's not Suspiria overbearing. There's a lot that happens in this movie, though. There are so many different sets and locations and kills. I agree. I really liked that little tune. I thought it was very catchy and it sounded very familiar to me. And it's probably just because I've seen a million movies that have Morricone score. And I feel like, you know. It sounds more like, I can't, I wish I had a theme in front of me. It sounds more like, it's an old classical tune. Not not like classical as in like, the first three notes sounds like something. Like a nursery rhyme? Yeah. That's the word I'm looking for, a nursery rhyme. Like, uh, the first three or four notes are like, that sounds like, and you're about to finish with the next note, but they change it. Well, let's switch from nursery rhymes to murder. Ah, oh, my favorite transition. <laughs> so, this movie, The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, is around 98 minutes long. There is one death every nine minutes or so. We have ten deaths total, seven by the Red Queen, six female deaths, and four male deaths. Yeah. The very first kill of the film is a natural death, but we will call it the first kill. Grandfather has a vision of Evelyn in his room, and he dies from a heart attack. Scared to death. So after seeing the Red Queen in the castle or seeing Evelyn, he has a natural cause of death. A heart attack passes away. The sister, Francesca, and her lover, Herbert, mention seeing a woman matching Evelyn's description running away from the scene. And this comes as a bit of a shock to Herbert and the sisters, as they are the only ones that know that Evelyn is not in the United States, for she is actually dead. Yeah, that's that's the second kill. The second kill is a flashback to Evelyn and Kitty fighting. And this is the one thing I'm very... This is where the editing kind of, the problems kind of kick in. It's just out of nowhere. And what? And, you, and it doesn't give you enough time to absorb it if that makes mm-hmm. sense when they show she's just dead oh oh she's in the water what and then that's it 
You're like, what happened? Yeah, but also 1972 Jalo. Yeah. But it's iconic, like her in the, the pond, the pond, lake, whatever, with like blood, with that bright red blood in the water. You know, it's pretty cool looking. Yeah, another iconic. Yes. <laughs> iconic. Jalo, iconic shots. Yep. Modern exactly. The, that scene ends with Evelyn accidentally cracking her head open on a statue and drowning in the lake. The tagline for this film is the corpse that didn't want to die. So that's where we get that tagline from. The death ends up being covered up by the older sister, Francesca, who tells everyone that Evelyn immigrated to the United States. This doesn't sit well with Kitty, who is willing to allow her sister to cover up the murder, but feels an overwhelming guilt. After Grandfather passes away, his will is read, but the bulk of it, which details who gets what, is sealed for a year. So there's very strict instructions that no one knows what they're getting for one year from when he passes away. Then a series of murders begin to occur around Kitty, all of which appear to have been caused by a red-cloaked Evelyn. Yes. Who is dead. Yeah. The corpse. And we know that because she's in the basement, in the dungeon. This next kill is Hans, who Hans. is Martin and Kitty's boss at the fashion house. Yeah. He's like the big head honcho. Former boss. Right. Who yeah. He gets stabbed in the park by the Red Queen as he's scoping out a prostitute. That was out of nowhere. Yeah, that was just very like that, random. Hit the neck. Oh, oh, crap. Oh, I was talking about just like the drive by through the park oh, looking no, for a hooker. Fair, like him walking in and now nowhere. It's like a little mini rapier, like right in the throat. That's like, a dagger. Yeah, like a dagger. But it has like a little, little rapier, like side yeah. things, handles. Just right in the throat. Oh, oh, man. Oh, crap. Abrupt. And then you get that cackle. Yeah. And then running away. <laughs> The fourth death is, again, by someone who we don't really get to know very well throughout the film. It's Lenora, who is a photography assistant who works closely with Kitty at the fashion house. She is stabbed to death in the wardrobe van. That was very unique. She's yes. trapped in the van. It's driving around that. Like, this This movie, we'll get into more. This movie had so many unique kills. I'm so glad that you brought that up because that kill scene was not originally scripted like that to okay. be inside the van. They actually saw the van on set that day. They looked for something unique to do in that scene, and they decided to add to the production value, they would put the murder inside that van. That was such a... I've, I, I've seen so many movies. I've never seen something like that before. Yeah. And then when she's killing her, when she stops and opens the doors, it's very 70s exploitation horror. Like it's very like a spit on your grave, like camera work. It yeah. felt grimy. Just that shot felt very grimy of her. Well, she felt violated, obviously. She was in a van and she's getting stabbed. Yeah, no. she had nowhere to go. She was yeah. stuck in, you know, that small van. And she gets stabbed, you know, once or twice in the van. There's not much blood when they end up showing her. But Lenora, so she's dead. And this happens after she proclaims that she thinks she knows who the Red Queen is. So she was, you know. Snuffed out. The police begin to suspect Kitty and Martin are the perpetrators of the murders, especially after Martin's institutionalized wife is found dead. So this is our fifth kill. Martin's estranged wife, Elizabeth, has her neck impaled on a spike fence while sneaking out with her new friend, Evelyn. Well, I'll tell you this. That was very random to me. Uh, His wife being institutionalized, she has this friend who she sees every night who's actually the Red Queen or Evelyn, yeah. and then she's sneaking out, 
Yeah. Damn, that Red Queen just cut that oh. ladder. Well, let me play something. I have rewinded it for my reaction to this, <laughs> so I'm going to play it right now. There you go. That was my reaction because it was so brutal. I was like, oh my gosh. It looked real. It looked ridiculous real. Like, that's what I'm saying. The editing when it comes to the kills is great. Like that, those jump cuts. Oh man. Hmm. Mm, brutal. That's probably my favorite kill of the whole movie. Yeah, that was a cool one. Next up, we have this Calkin, Peter Calkin, who yeah. is heroin addict friend of Evelyn who rapes Kitty yeah. in one of the scenes that is prior to this one, him getting... And I wasn't a big fan of that scene because afterwards, like, Kitty's like, didn't really affect her at the end. Yeah, they don't bring it up again. Yeah, you're just I like, know. why even have this scene? He's already a scumbag. Yeah, I kind of feel that it was the day of shooting and the second unit director was like, oh, we forgot the rape scene. Let's add it in. Not need it. Yeah. I guess it's so soon to say, oh, he's a scumbag. I know he hasn't been in the movie much, so remember he's a scumbag. He did this. But I'm like, just look at him. So he, he gets tricked into trying to get into a car that is being driven by Evelyn or the Red Queen. She shuts his jacket into the door, and then he is dragged behind the car. Very deep red. Yeah. Deep red did it better, though, because... Deep red did it better. In this one, they played it too safe. You could tell that they didn't want to hurt the actor or the stunt person. So you could tell where they were being, like, kind of careful driving. Yeah. Deep red, they just, nope. they, they gave no fucks. Boom! <laughs> you're, you're just going to be dragged <laughs> around, dude. Sorry. Sorry, Afro guy. Our seventh kill, Lulu, who is a model who has hardly had her clothes on this entire movie. Yeah. She sleeps with Martin in one of the earlier scenes, which you're like, can't we just have, like, a nice boyfriend that doesn't cheat on his girlfriend? But I guess not. Lulu is shot dead after mentioning that she knows who is really behind the murders. With a silenced pistol. So Lulu is dead. Another person that works at the fashion house. She's a model. This leads to Martin getting his hands on grandfather's will, which reveals the truth about the Woldenbrook family. There's a big right. twist. So here comes the motive slash twist. Spoilers. But we're not done with the murder, so okay. so hang tight, everyone. Said spoilers are coming, guys. <laughs> so Rosemary, who works at the fashion house with Kitty and Martin, and she's the fashion queen, she's actually the sister of Kitty and Francesca. Yes. Not only that, she is also revealed to be the real Evelyn. The girl slash woman from the flashbacks that we see and we're led to believe is Evelyn was actually the daughter of a poor family who sold her when she was a child. Yes. When they were children, grandfather switched the identities of the kids and sent the real Evelyn, who is now known as Rosemary, away so that she could break the family curse. So basically it's a bunch of like uh, crazy things because of a superstitious grandfather was like, He's a little stitious. No, he's superstitious. He's <laughs> like, I gotta break the curse, even though he's like 100 years old, so it doesn't matter to him. But I guess it does, because he died. The older sister, Francesca, she knew the contents of Grandfather's Will all along, and she wanted the entire estate for herself. She thought that she deserved it, since she was the one taking care of him at the end. And it turns out 
there's another twist that the girl we thought was Evelyn survived the accidental attack from Kitty, you know, where her head was smashed and she maybe drowned. Francesca finds her alive, but she kills her anyway because she doesn't consider her a real member of the family. She doesn't think that she deserves any of the inheritance. And then the plot to kill everyone named in the will unfolds. Yeah. Francesca tracks down the real Evelyn, now living under the name Rosemary. She tells her the true lineage of the family and of herself. She starts to mold Rosemary into a killer by introducing her to the legend of the Red Queen. She also begins, you know, hooking her up with drugs. Making faces? Like making like a mask? Making masks, which that mask was... That was haunting. That was very haunting. So basically she was controlling Rosemary... Under the influence of drugs, Rosemary begins her killing spree as the cackling Red Queen. Eventually, Rosemary gets scared of being a murderer. She doesn't want to do it anymore. So this leads us to the eighth kill in the film. The climax of the film comes with a pretty big set piece in the basement of the castle. Uh, then random water ride happens. (laughs) Where she floods the, the, well, there's two, there's two, there's not a kill, so we got, like, she floods the, yeah, yeah. the room. So, yeah, we'll, we'll get to the actual flooding, but I just thought, like, like what? huge, crazy set piece in the basement of this castle where there's rats and slugs and all kinds of crazy things. There's a few more deaths, but none of them seem really tacked on, and I think they're all pretty important to the central mystery of the film. Yeah. Francesca, 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 sorry it guys. Like, it sounded sound like Francesca when I was to the Italian version. Well, there's a Z, Francesca. <laughs> Kills Rosemary by literally stabbing her in the back. She then tricks Kitty into entering the basement of the castle where she tries to drown her via flooding, yeah. which is the thing where she's like spinning the wheel and you it unleashes just, the you water. killed her and then hit her in the basement. No one's gone. No one found Evelyn, the fake Evelyn. Mm-mm. And at this point, Martin had read the will. He ends up confronting Francesca as she's leaving the castle, leaves Kitty to drown. Francesca confesses everything to Martin, and she tells him that she's sick of her husband, Herbert, or her boothing, Herbert, and that she and Martin can be together. Yeah. and Herbert, That was also very random to yeah, me. Yeah, and Herbert, well, she knows that Martin sees everyone. Um, <laughs> and Herbert limps in, just limps in. Starts blasting. So I walked in and started oh, blasting. Yeah. Oh, yep. So he overhears the tail end of the conversation and he shoots her up. Yeah. So the, the <laughs> one that vanquishes the, the, the monster, the killer, is Herbert. fucking Herbert. Fucking Herbert. Mustache man Herbert. Sideburns. Sideburn mustache, because there's already the Freddie Mercury's yeah, mustache Yeah, yeah, so sideburn mustache. Sideburn mustache man Herbert. And in all the commotion, Martin is stabbing the chest. But him and Herbert are, like, on good terms. They both know, like, this bitch is crazy. Like, so let's both, go save Kitty. So they both limp into yeah, the place. Yeah, so they both, like, run in. Yeah, yeah, not run, sorry. Limp into the castle. <laughs> Martin calls the police for help. The police arrive, and they open the door to the room, which Kitty is well, trapped. First, well, first, like, Herbert, don't get too close. <laughs> and then just opens the floodgates, literally, and just, you see Herbert fly. To me, I... I know this is supposed to be like a serious climax scene, but I laughed so hard because I was not... The one thing throughout this whole movie I was not expecting was like a floodgate, people drowning kind of ending. 
Yeah, so they end up rescuing Kitty, but Herbert drowns as the castle basement okay. is flooded. So he drowns. He drowns. Okay, because they said they list Francesca, Herbert, and Martin, but Har- Martin lives. Well, he might, yeah. have, he might have died. So in the at the very but. end, yeah, the very end, Martin and Kitty are seen. They're both alive, and they're in the ambulance going to the hospital. And there's like this nice serene music playing. Yeah, but I was like. Okay, so Herbert the end. Drown, which Herbert's is, our tenth, our Herbert, tenth death. Herbert drowns is the most hilarious. Our hero drowns. Well, I guess he has one bad leg, so poor guy. He should have stood too. I close. mean, and there's listeners. I know those ten kills or those ten acts. You know, accidental deaths. You know, drowning and a heart attack and stuff. It seems like a lot. And that's not even, like, the surface. Yeah. We completely, like, skipped over you know, when Lulu gets shot. Oh, yeah. At the house, and he's, like, running up the state. He's at this apartment where all the, the masks and everything are. Yeah. They have, like, a, a little there, secret. There reveals that this person might not be a black-haired or brunette. Right. That's when it's originally, yeah, revealed that they're modeling their outfit after Evelyn, which obviously. Around there, when it showed the hair, I thought, it's Francesca. The, I, the, the rosemary thing was a, fl- a twist there. So technically, Francesca yeah. was not the killer. She was like the puppet master. Right. So I guess right. I, I I kind of called it, but not really. Yeah. Uh, I also started thinking, is it Herbert? But then Herbert showed up. Like, he has a mustache, but it could be like a terrible mustache. Well, I think that he was in on it. Yeah. But then once Francesca was like, hey, Martin, let's hook up. Herbert was like, you bitch. Yeah. There's also the great, uh, when uh, Kitty has her first encounter with the Red Queen, she falls in a haystack. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was very Suspiria. Oh, can we talk about, uh, are we done with the kills? We are done with the kills. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about the editing and that weird dream scene. Oh, I like that. The one where it was projected, the yes. Red Queen was projected onto yes. Kitty's bed. Yes. I like that scene. It was a fine scene, but it was very jarring. They don't set you up for a lot of things. It was very random, and that yeah. one also reminded me a lot of all the colors of the dark. That's what I'm saying. Like, I felt like the editing was random and yeah. sudden, but that's not... I'm trying to blame the editor. My it's biggest also, note who, on... Also footage-wise. Yeah, my biggest note on the editing was at the very end, after Martin calls for the police to come rescue Kitty, the police just, like, are there in, like, a split second. Yeah, and the, the editing for that is... It's, a, it's, it's a, a combo of the editing and uh, how much coverage was done. Because they might not have got enough coverage. There might be some stuff on the cutting room floor that they got rid of. Who knows? With a movie like this old, that's in the 70s, usually if there's, like, deleted scenes, stuff might get damaged and destroyed mm-hmm. and gone. Mm-hmm. You know? For me, The Red Queen Kills Seven Times is one of the more unique Italian thrillers that I've watched recently. Sure, there's an overcomplicated conclusion and reveal, but I really enjoyed the kills, the camera work, and the fashion, of course. I think the Red Queen is a pretty iconic character. Yeah, I think it has a great look. It's different from the the leather glove killer uh, and the classic just wearing a mask kind of killer. She's great. I think... uh, there's a mystery to it. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think they do kind of throw every everything in the kitchen sink plot-wise at the end. Um, but it all kind of makes sense in the end. Yeah, I think it's a, a wonderful mix of gothic horror and the giallo subgenre. Yeah. The result is something that combines murder mystery, suspense, slasher, the gothic elements, of course. Yeah, and red is always a, a mischievous color. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you think the devil, Little Red Riding Hood. I mean, she's, I mean, she's innocent, but there's always that tale. Of, yeah, it's... I mean, Little Red Riding Hood does have a wolf, and there's always the mm-hmm. idea of a wolf in sheep's clothing. You know, it, it, red is always. I guess it's also a seductive color. You know, it's a good choice. I can't imagine a purple queen. <laughs> the theme of this episode is folklore, fables, and fairy tale storytelling within cinema. The Red Queen Kills Seven Times is first and foremost a Jalo. The folklore and fable through lines are intertwined with Gothic influences. The first horror movies were based on mythology and folklore. They were cautionary tales designed to mold young minds into making wise choices. Fairy tales from all over the world, particularly in Europe, have been dark stories designed to instruct children not to stray from paths, not to venture out alone at night, and not to talk to strangers. Horror films that draw on fairy tale themes can effectively use imaginative methods to terrify audiences, especially in the area of creature designs and strong environmental visuals. Folklore and fairy tales have been around for centuries, long before the written word, and they were often quite brutal and bloody. Moral tales full of fairies, goblins, and various mythical creatures featured cannibalism, murder, and dismemberment to keep children in line. The Red Queen Kills Seven Times displays European nobility in the folklore of the Wildenbrook family. There's a curse at hand. In order for the curse to work, every aspect of one's life, most notably when and with whom one has children with, has been predetermined by some outside force. While this is not brought explicitly to the forefront in The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, it does exist in the background. It's a story at its heart about the loss of free will, presenting a world where each individual choice is meaningless due to cosmic events. Folk horror is often simplified as the relationship between horror and folklore. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, folk horror films were characterized by themes of witchcraft and the supernatural. Not every folk horror story explores folklore. Some of them are rooted in the cult or witchcraft. The Gollum and the Phantom Carriage take their cues from folklore and superstition. But it was 1922's Haxon, with its disturbing images of witchcraft and ancient belief systems, that laid the foundations for traditional folk horror to grow in following decades. In mythology and folklore, a vengeful ghost is said to be the spirit of a dead person who returns from the afterlife to seek revenge for a cruel, unnatural, or unjust death. The concept of a vengeful ghost seeking retribution goes back to ancient times and is part of many cultures. According to such legends and beliefs, they roam the world of the living as restless spirits, seeking to have their grievances rectified, and may not be satisfied until they have succeeded in punishing their murderers. In The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, after the Black Queen kills the Red Queen, the family becomes cursed to bear witness to seven murders every 100 years. In certain cultures, vengeful ghosts are mostly female, said to be women that were unjustly treated during their lifetime. Such women may have died in despair, or the suffering they endured may have ended up in an early death caused by ill treatment or torture. In our world, fairy tales and fables have been around for centuries. They refer to events taking place once upon a time in a faraway realm. 
They come from a variety of different cultures and worldviews, but all in an age steeped in a sense of the spiritual. Fairy tales are a kind of folk tale that have some kind of magic and usually feature a clash of good versus evil. One may say that the rivalry between the Black Queen and the Red Queen, or between Evelyn and Kitty and the Red Queen Kills Seven Times, is meant to represent the battle between good and evil. Almost every fable involves a battle, whether in its symbolism or a literal battle. The villain is the evil character in the story. Their main intention is to harm or kill the main character or to prevent them from achieving success, love, and happiness. In The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, the villain is there to prevent other family members from receiving what's in the will. The hero and the villain are at odds with each other. They each want a different outcome, and this produces conflict and competition. Fairy tales are extremely black and white, or in the film's case, black and red, contrasting the pure, innocent young girl against the wicked witch, the evil stepmother, or the big bad wolf. The Red Queen Kills Seven Times contains many examples of folklore or fairy tale symbolism. Our antagonist is known for her long, dark hair and witch-like cackle. Traditionally in fairy tales, witches represent the dark or shadow side of ourselves, aspects that we have repressed. They are the force that must be destroyed for our hero to survive and thrive. In the tale of Snow White, a queen wishes to have a baby with white skin, red cheeks, and hair as black as the wood of the window frame. When her beautiful baby girl, Snow White, is born, the queen's wish comes true. The projected image of Snow White could refer to the child and woman who we believe to be Evelyn in The Red Queen Kills Seven Times. Grandfather brings her into the family, a child with white skin and black hair, to be the savior and break the family curse. However, black hair is unusual for a princess in grim fairy tales. More often, their heroines, much like in The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, are blonde. The fact that Snow White has such black hair hints that she's shadowed by death, because she is. Her stepmother desperately wants her dead. Snow White may be the fairest of them all, but her black hair sets her apart from the typical grim fairy tale princess. In The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, the color black is given one of its traditional meanings, the meaning of death. Evelyn's hair is black, and also the Black Queen is the one that kills the Red Queen, which triggers the entire plot of this film. Additionally, we have some wordplay with the character of Rosemary. The name Rosemary loosely translates to Red Queen. A queen is a popular archetype within fairy tales and fables. We also have the character of Martin's wife, Elizabeth, who is locked in a psych ward, which could be compared to Rapunzel being locked in her tower. Rapunzel has the most striking hair in the whole Grimm fairy tale collection. It's so long it can be used as a ladder going up to her tower room where Rapunzel is kept prisoner. Every night, the woman who has imprisoned Rapunzel calls up to her, let down thy hair. When Rapunzel obeys, dropping her immensely long braid out the window, the witch climbs up. For the witch, Rapunzel is the closest thing to a daughter. In The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, Elizabeth believes she is being taken to safety by the Red Queen, or the person she knows as Evelyn, 
when in reality she is brought to her death with the use of a ladder. And as Wade mentioned earlier, there are a few Red Riding Hood comparisons in the Red Queen Kills Seven Times. In Christian symbolism, the parishioners are often referred to as sheep, while the wolf, in being the sheep's predator, is seen as the devil or an instrument of Satan. The reveal of our mass killer in The Red Queen Kills Seven Times alludes to a wolf in sheep's clothing. Another way of looking at the wolf is as the trickster, a character similar to the hare, cat, fox, or raven in other fairy tales. These tricksters are often demigods in disguise, wise fools who use tricks as a way of teaching. The trickster represents good versus evil and the duality as well as the chaos of creation as opposed to the reality of order. The trickster is both destroyer and creator of the world, but yet not of this world. In most Jalo films, the killer can be seen as a sort of trickster. There's a scheme, there's something that they want to accomplish, and they typically use tricks to commit their murders. And with our final fairy tale comparison, we can't overlook that our killer's red cape is eerily similar to the character of Little Red Riding Hood. Since we are talking about folklore, fables, and fairy tale storytelling within cinema, Wade, do you have any recommendations for flavor of the month? One of them is deals with the theme, and one, uh, two of them do not deal with the theme. The first one that deals with the theme is Orpheus. We did it on Criterion Connection. Want to check it on YouTube? Uh, which I'll plug a little later. Uh, it's uh, by Jean Cocteau. It's about the, the tale of uh, Orpheus, and it's great. It's great. It has some projection stuff in there, too. Check that out. Also, Seven. David Fincher? Uh, yeah. I mean, Seven Kills, but it's always this idea of, like, there has to be seven kills. And that's the idea of, like, the idea... Folklore, of, kind of. It's kind of yeah. like, you know... Myth, you know, mythology. You know, the stuff. Seven Deadly Sins, but also the idea of... It's fate that seven have to die in this in the Red Queen, but also seven have to die in this, or seven have to be. I guess it's seven. Seven don't have to die. It's more of they're shown to be the sins. Yeah. Because at the end, some. It's a don't very die. interesting. I thought I thought the same thing. Seven. Wow, that's an interesting thought. But yeah. of course, this is Wade. So there has to be a tales from the crypt. Thank goodness! Episode. I was about to have to delete this entire episode. Kick you off. Sorry. Uh, tales from the crypt episode. Very similar to this one. Uh, it's called Fatal Caper. It's season seven, episode one. The only season that is the season seven, which was the black sheep season, because it was filmed in England. And it's also like it's not favored by a lot of people, but you know people like Daniel Craig make their debut, like very early Daniel Craig's in there. It's an episode directed by Bob Haskins. He's Mario from the Super Mario Brothers movie. But yeah, like, it's basically about this Baron is like, uh, he, if he puts in his will that his, his two sons, they can't get the inheritance until they find their long-lost brother, Frank. One of the characters' name is Evelyn. Huh. Yeah. So, it's it's great. You know, it's a guy, like, the siblings kind of betraying each other. It's a, it's a pretty good episode with a great twist. So, what was the name of it and what season? Uh, Fatal Caper, Season 7, Episode 1. Nice. That is a very good yes. flavor of the yes. month. Yes. And, and Especially they're, they're, they're the Evelyn. Castle. They're in a castle. Okay. that's I have to check that one out. Yeah. So I have three flavors this month. My first pick is The Lore from 2015. It's a Polish horror musical, which tells the tale of two mermaids who emerge from the waters and perform in a nightclub. 
One falls in love with a man and gives up her tail, but loses her voice in the process. The other sister lusts for human flesh, but both sisters become rising stars. Which was already co- also covered on Criterion Connection on YouTube. Yeah, and the story is a reworking of the 1837 fairy tale, The Little Mermaid, by Hans Christian Andersen. My next pick is The Shrine from 2010. It's a Canadian supernatural horror film that follows two female journalists and a photographer who travel to Europe to investigate a series of mysterious disappearances forced into the gruesome reality of true survival horror and a little bit of supernatural. The journalists soon discover that the village that they go to hides a much darker secret than they could ever imagine. The composer for this film was actually nominated for a Grammy Award in 2012 for Best Score Soundtrack. I think that it's a lesser known like supernatural folklore film. So The Shrine from 2010. Never seen it. I would suggest it, obviously. Obviously. And my third flavor of the month is Valerie and Her Week of Wonders from 1970. Mm. It's a Czech cult movie inspired by fairy tales such as Alice in Wonderland and Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, It's a surreal coming-of-age tale that explores love, sex, religion, and the stressors of becoming a woman while blending elements of fantasy and horror. After you listen to this episode and you check out these flavors of the month, go on youtube.com slash makethisproductions. You'll see YouTube reviews of Orpheus... Valerie in A Week of Wonders, and... The Lore. The Lore. Sorry, I was drinking my tea. It's okay. <laughs> I have another one. I, I put this... Like, it was not serious. I, this is the one that was a reject, because I couldn't think of it. I have others. a couple that are rejects, so like, go ahead. I know what you did last summer. The idea of hmm. kind of, like, revenge. Yeah. Also, I guess you can say Final Destination, because, you, you know, they have to all die in a certain order and stuff like that. Huh. That was an idea. Oh, this, I these went. These are all rejects that didn't make the cut. Yeah, I went for. I went in a di- different direction. I my my runner ups were The Wicker Man, nineteen seventy three. Oh. Obviously, any like Hounds of Baskerville adaptation. Okay. There's a great episode of Sherlock that's a Hounds of Baskerville. Uh, Lamora, A Child's Tale of the Supernatural. That's a like a lesser known one that would actually pair well with Valerie and her Week of Wonders. And then also Kill List, which that is a very dark drama that kind of has uh, folklore and fable under <laughs> undertones to there's it. There's a lot of movies on movies, like, we could go a whole episode talking about, like, Arthurian, you know, the idea of King Arthur and stuff like that. Like, yeah. You'd be always going to that lore, d I mean. Great flavors, as usual. Good Never. for the holiday season. <laughs> you know, if you listen to this, chances are it's almost January, so we're... Speaking of the new year, I did want to do a little look back at some of the previous episodes of Jell of the Month Club. I wanted to thank Dylan Tillman, Sarah Adler, Heather Levin, and Lauren Fiocco, who were all guests on Jell of the Month Club. All great guests. Throughout this year. But they made it awesome. Guests. No, they made it awesome, and we had one Jollo episode per month, a bunch of bonus episodes... Great film festivals, a lot of good content. And also, I mean, you can thank, and you were on a couple episodes. Yeah, and you can also thank some of the hosts, but thanks to the, to your listeners, of course. Of course, yeah. Thanks everyone that follows the podcast and subscribes, sends me recommendations. Yeah. I have an entire letterbox list of recommendations, so I have plenty of content for next year. Mm-hmm. Wade, while I have you here, is there anything that you wanted to plug or promote? Yes, I do. There's a couple things. I mean, before I get to the main condition stuff, you can follow me on Twitter at Frankensuede. It'll just be talk. It's gonna be me talking about wrestling, and <laughs> yelling, at, yelling at politicians. So maybe don't follow me on that. 
Suede Guy on Instagram. Follow me on that if you want to look at like a lot of vinyl. Also be posting my top 10. Uh, and also Suede MCP on Letterboxd. I've been getting a lot of people following me and I see they have, they like a lot of Jollos. So I'm like, they might be from the podcast. So keep on following, keep on doing what you're doing. Uh, also Minkadish Productions, YouTube, youtube.com slash Minkadish Productions. We are, fun fact, I made this announcement now, exclusively, I mean, there's some people that know, but like publicly. Breaking wanna, news. Uh, on this podcast is the next, we do a lot of short films. The next short film, we're gearing for pre, we're in pre-production now. We're finishing casting. Actually, this week, we're actually going to finalize the cast list. But next year, hopefully in March, as long as COVID doesn't mess everything up, we're going to be starting to film a Jallo-inspired short film. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, of course, we're planning on March, but of course, you know, COVID might go on lockdown. I can't do it. It's one of those things like we're not on a deadline, so we're going to get it done. But hopefully 2021, we will have a Jallo thing that we can promote on this show. Yeah, that would be a jam-packed episode. Have you on? Man, we'll have to find a movie that jives well with your script. It's going to be hard. Yeah. The script's kind of unique. Yeah. But it has all, of course, I'm I'm just going to spoil it right here. There will be J&B. Have to. I mean, there's going to be a a red phone. It's on my checklist of all the props we have to buy for it. I have a whole list of props. It's a whole long list. And on the top list is J&B... Uh, whiskey or scotch just boom did it if that was not in your short i would have to uh not talk to you ever again i know <laughs> take, a, Jallo, then. take away your jollo card yeah the jollo the month club card probably was uh the idea came up from christmas vacation so timely to make that joke now well, speaking of wonderful people doing wonderful things, <laughs> the amazing folks over at BNS About Movies are hosting a Jalo themed week from January 10th to January 16th. There will be plenty of content and reviews available on many Jalo and Jalo adjacent films, such as Lipstick and Blood, Scorpion with Two Tails, Bizarre, Clap If You're Dead. Many other movies that I'm not listing, like 20 other movies. You can follow along at bandsaboutmovies.com. I will also plug the website in the episode description so you can easily access their Jollo January coverage. As for Jollo of the Month Club, you can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at Jollo Club. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you like what you hear, please give the podcast a five star rating. Logo design is by Vegan Patches on Instagram. You can find Vegan Patches Etsy shop at Retirement Funds. Theme music is by Dream Division. You can find Dream Division's music on Instagram at Dream Division Music and on Bandcamp at dreamdivision.bandcamp.com. Speaking of nice vinyl records, Dream Division has a plethora of amazing merch and very cool records. They sell out really quick, guys. Yeah, so definitely follow Dream Division on Instagram, Dream Division Music. And if you would like, you can follow myself, your host, Diana, on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Diana NK. Two N's. Yes, D-I-A-N-N-A-N-K. Yes. Wade, thank you for being on another fabulous episode of Jollo Month Club. Hell yeah. I guess this is a good time to mention our favorite films episode. Yeah, this is not the last episode of 2020 of me on John Yeah, That episode is our top 10 individual lists. Favorite films of 2020. It was hard. As always, I'm your host, Diana. 
And I'm Wade. Thank you for listening to Jalo of the Month Club. Thank you.